This is the Pain Information Network, 102. Today we're going to talk about opioids again and the side effects of opioids that people know they have and they feel them and they're very much a part of their lives when they're taking chronic opioid therapy. But they didn't really have a label for them or or didn't really have a good name for them to explain what they are. And these two side effects, the first one being opioid-induced hyperalgesia and the second being opioid-induced constipation are starting to become more important to us and emerging as important side effects to acknowledge. You may have seen it on the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 50. They had a commercial for opioid-induced constipation. Now, go figure that. So today I'm going to go through a couple of articles, and I'll give you the references on those, too. I think they're both good articles, and uh, one is a consensus article on opioid-induced constipation, and one is something I had a little something to do with. I got, uh, I think, one of my third or fourth authors, something like this, on a review of opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And they're worth reading, particularly if you're a healthcare provider or a curious consumer. Um, and there's lots of lay information out there because these companies that deal with opioid-induced constipation have been interested in populating their website with consumer-friendly information. So don't hesitate visiting their website. I'll give you a couple of their names. And don't hesitate in uh, checking out these articles. You can get them online. So let's go through the opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Chief author is Marion Lee and Silverman. Uh, Patel's in there and Dr. Manchikani, who's incredibly prolific. Okay, this is, this is what it is. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia is where the nociceptor is sensitized when it's around opioids. Now, remember, I told you a nociceptor is normal when it hurts, but it can hurt abnormally, or it could hurt when very little non-noxious stimuli is placed at the location of pain. That might be called a term, allodynia, or something like this. But opioid-induced hyperalgesia is, once again, you wouldn't expect somebody to hurt, and you wouldn't expect them to have pain because they're being treated for pain. So it's curious, and it, it, it is very curious to people to have this uh, experience when they think they're taking opioids, and it's usually chronic pain, and they think they should be getting better, but the opioid dose is creeping up and they're getting worse. The myalgias are less quantified. It's getting harder to get a handle on the pain. It's getting frustrated. And quite, uh, quite honestly, a lot of these people get very depressed because it looks like they can't be helped. Well, actually, they can. And counterintuitively, it means coming back down on the opioid. Where is it first described? Albut, A-L-B-U-T-T. Yep, that's a name. I can't make that up. Observed and wrote about it in 1870. At such times, I have certainly felt it a great responsibility to say that pain, which I know is an evil, is less injurious than morphia. Morphia is what they uh, called morphine-induced pain, which may be an evil. Does morphia tend to encourage the very pain it pretends to relieve? Experience is needed. In the cases in question, I have much reason to suspect that a reliance upon hypodermic, the had morphia, 
only ended in that curious state of perpetuated pain. So how about that? Okay, Rosbach in 1880 said, when dependence on opioids finally becomes an illness of itself, opposite effects like restlessness, sleep disturbance, that's we hear that all the time, hyperesthesia, neuralgia, and irritability become manifest. That's in the article, by the way, I'm reading it. So it looks like, um, you know, we can give these opioid analgesics to analgesia, but then we can sensitize the central nervous system probably by various mechanisms, and we'll go through a few. And uh, and lo and behold, there it is. Also, keep in mind that some of the metabolites of uh, drugs, and I'll pick on morphine, uh, can cause pain, such as morphine-3-glucuronide. There's morphine-6, analgesic morphine-3. As a metabolite of uh, morphine, and it can cause uh, central nervous system irritability, and we see that in that allodynia, and it's uh, particularly important in penal, people that have poor renal function. So, different drugs and different classes do different things, and so that's that's what we've got to kind of figure out: is who is going to be getting what from what? And interestingly, if we look at people with uh, uh, long-standing exposure to fairly high-dose opioids, like those in um, medication-assisted treatment with methadone, uh, we kind of see that. And uh, on my side of addiction where I practice, people that come to me, and uh, they may have even just been taking uh, fairly significant doses of buprenorphine, they have diffuse myalgias or these kind of muscle pains that don't make a lot of sense, but they're there, and they think they need something for pain with this. No, sometimes we just got to reduce the dose of opioid. So what happens when you uh, see these people with high dose um, uh, exposure? They're producing other side effects. And so not only are they getting what seemingly is worse with their pain perspective, but they tend to have a little bit more nausea. um, They feel in more of a funk. They don't have a clear thinking process. And they itch sometimes. And, of course, that's a histamine release. That's not an allergy usually. So the sensitization is is, is quite important, um, and it, it has to be recognized, and it's often not recognized. This is where a pain uh, specialist gets involved. If you're not getting anywhere with your pain and your healthcare provider says, well, maybe you just need a little bit more, or uh, unfortunately, you just want more medicine, that's what you're just saying, well... That's not the broad differential diagnosis that we need, particularly when we treat those with chronic pain. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia in my practice is very real. In the laboratory, it's reproduced um, where higher doses of opioids are given and uh, there, there seems to be sensitization. And so it's, it's reproduced and <clears throat> it tends to be on a chronic nature. The development of OIH is very uh, rare acute. Uh, pain scenarios. So when you give a mouse a bunch of drugs and uh, they become uh, uh, used to the drug and they induce this pro-nociceptive effect and they tend to have enhanced pain. So the analgesic is no longer somewhat of a quote anesthetic or analgesic. It is now a problem. All right, question mark. Uh, I'm an anesthesiologist, too, and 
uh, my days in the OR, uh, my, my question was, why do these people need so much pain med postoperatively? In my day, we would give f- huge doses of fentanyl, a potent uh, uh, opioid that's about 80 to 100 times more potent than morphine, but it's in micrograms, by the way, not milligrams. And we would give them, we don't do this anymore, but we'd give them really high dose of opioids. And then postoperatively from their, their bypass surgery, they they would hurt a lot. So can we induce this quickly? Well, maybe so. I don't know if it's ever been uh, studied in that arena, but it, it certainly could uh, be suspected. All right, so what what's going on here? Uh, why is this happening? Remember when we talked about ketamine and the NMDA receptor, N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor, uh, modulation of glutamate and this sort of thing in the central nervous system? Well, it may play a role. The NMDA receptor may play a significant role, and so it leads us back to what? Ketamine, and I'll talk, talk to that in just a minute. So when they're activated uh, and when inhibited, they prevent the development of tolerance in OH. And that this glutamate transport system, when it is inhibited, it increases the amount of glutamate. And that's available to the NMDA receptor. Calcium regulated by the intracellular protein kinase C, that's PKC, is likely a link between cellular mechanisms of tolerance and OIH. So you become more tolerant, and there's neurochemical, remember, think pain inside out as opposed to outside in, and that sets up uh, the likely occurrence of OIH. And then the brain responds uh, by um, this semi-plasticity. And there's cross, there's this talking back and forth, and so this is what happened. You give uh, opioids, say morphine in this case, uh, and the NMDA receptors uh, uh, can change the central nervous system and how it perceives pain. Uh, there's a number of other uh, uh, peptides and the like that may be interested in. Uh, this kind of uh, research-based uh, activation, but it's it's just something that's going to have to be ongoing because this is um, uh, a, an emerging problem, but we're trying to minimize escalation of controlled substances. So I don't know if it's worth putting a lot of research time into this when we know it's probably there in the animal model. So why don't we just try backing down on the opioid or making an agent shift or using adjuncts and the problem goes away? I found gabapentinoids to be very helpful. All right, so there's also genetic influences. Some people just get it and some people don't. So we know that uh, one of the breakdown enzymes um, uh, called catechol-O-methyltransferase, C-O-M-T, uh, can be a marker in addiction studies. And we look for that marker because um, breakdown of uh, dopamine uh, with, you know, the gasoline of addiction can occur at uh, different uh, uh, rates, and uh, that has a, an effect on probably addiction, uh, and it might have a, a relationship here because COMT definitely influences central nervous system pain modulation. So I'll reference you to the article uh, to get into a number of other mechanisms proposed. 
But uh, keep in mind that if opioid-induced hyperalgesia is suspected, it just doesn't go away overnight. It's a central sensitization, and we know those uh, mechanisms can take some time. So be patient and, uh, and, and, and do the right thing. You, of course, treat pain, but understand this is a potential side effect. We know that ketamine uh, binds to different receptor sites, and it, uh, one of the binding sites is the N-methyldiaspartate uh, uh, receptor. And that's where it's supposed to work. Uh, so the the question is, is it a good drug to give people with OIH? Might be. Uh, and they recommend low-dose, and that's what I use in my practice is low-dose ketamine. You don't have to give big doses. Now, the, most people don't also realize that dextromethorphan, uh, like Robitussin DM, is an N-methyldiaspartate uh, su- uh, suppressant. Uh, it's non-competitive. And uh, I've used this drug. Uh, I've had it compounded by compounding pharmacists. I've c- combined it with two other medicines uh, that are uh, natural and in you. And... Uh, uh, and they're very, very effective with myalgias. And it's uh, something, if you're interested in, I could I could do a podcast on. But it looks like dextromethorphan may have some, some use, as does clonidine, which is an alpha-2 receptor agonist. And, again, that's in the central nervous system, inside out, as opposed to outside in. All right, so practically, if we think we have OIH, it, it just comes down to uh, common sense. Go low, take it slow, expect this to take a little bit of time to turn around, but it does. And uh, use adjunctive medication. And I like gabapentinoids, um, and uh, I would ask you to talk to your uh, care provider about uh, this common, I think fairly common problem in those with medium to high do- dose opioid exposure. All right, how do I get that article? Go to asipp.org, go to journals. Click on Pain Physician. Under Pain Physician, you'll see the search bar. Just put Hanson up there, and uh, a few of them down. You'll, I think it's, I think it's on the second page uh, of of the stuff I've been involved with. You'll see comprehensive review of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and uh, the actual article itself. It, yeah, I think it's worth reading this stuff. Um, none of it is. Uh, perfect, but it's it's free, and that is the remarkable thing about Pain Physician Journal. Read worldwide, we have contributors worldwide. I'm I'm a section editor. I get to read great articles that these folks send in. Tremendous efforts, um, and uh, it's readable. <clears throat> I think that uh, most anybody can read these. You can ha- write down questions for your care provider. Not too many, but. Even take the article in. You can print it and take it in. It's, uh, I think it's a valuable resource, and goes, uh, it, it should go to the public uh, uh, in their uh, interest category more and more so. The article is Pain Physician 2011, 14, 145-161. That's the page. So it's a focused review. And I, I really liked uh, uh, being part of it because it's readable and it's it's valuable and emerging. Now the next one I like is um, 
Charles Argoff, uh, he's the lead author. Uh, they had some neurologists, gastroenterologists, et cetera. The pain guy was Lynn Webster. He's really uh, well-respected out of Utah. He's contributed a lot, and I've quoted some of his work a lot uh, in different uh, uh, arenas, mostly my speaking stuff. He just does a good job. Uh, this uh, was published in November 2015. Uh, so it's in Pain Medicine, okay, Volume 16, Issue 12, December 2015. And it's, it's easily obtainable on the web and in totality. So, all right, wh- what is this opioid-induced constipation? Well, it's, it's probably universal in people that take uh, medium to high dose uh, opioids. They have decreased gut motility and decreased um, uh, activity uh, that uh, is from a number of, of mechanisms. So let's go through some of this. All right, believe it or not, there are forms <laughs> and ways to report, um, uh, you know, number two. And uh, so they utilize these forms, and I assume they're validated instruments, and they reported outcome. And they, they took those measures um, to include um, you know, patient-reported outcomes as constipation, intensity, severity, ease, difficulty, uh, incomplete, straining, discomfort, etc. You can read them. It's not a favorite topic of mine to talk about, but it's one I have to talk about because it's a real thing. I met with one of the company uh, folks uh, pretty high up in the company of uh, one of these uh, drugs that uh, uh, are now available for opioid-induced constipation, really kind of game changers. And we had a great talk, and this these drugs are, are really becoming important in those that have to be exposed to uh, opioids, and you say, "Well, what? Chronic pain patients? If they're having a problem, why can't? They, why don't they just take a stool softener, or a bulk agent, or something along the on those lines?" Yeah, sure. You know, you want to push the mush, but the the thing is, um, <laughs> they don't always work. And in my experience with opioids, this has been one of the hardest things for us to defeat. Now we have great drugs, and they have minimal side effects, and that actually was one of the questions I saw. Uh, that a medical board wanted you to ask uh, when you had somebody on chronic opioids uh, under the category of uh, side effects, do you have constipation? And uh, in my experience, people really had bad constipation when they were on opioids were uh, older folks that were on uh, these anticholinergic drugs like amitriptyline, that's Elevil, um, that dried you out, slowed you down, uh, and um, other medications that uh, you, you a lot of times wouldn't think would be a problem. And they became dehydrated. That would be a problem. And they uh, didn't eat enough of the right things. And they did a lot of the wrong things. Sedentary lifestyle, didn't drink enough water, etc. cetera. Uh, did all the things I don't want them to do. They smoked too much. Uh, didn't really see it with the drinkers. <laughs> the drinkers... Uh, they tended to have uh, no problem, a lot of diarrhea from many withdrawal every day. So the opioid-induced constipation was greater than equal to one per day bowel movement, and uh, they they put it against uh, 
those that uh, had poor outcome measures, and you can read about those, very readable. Um, so when they use these tools, which I really don't want to get into, like the stool symptom screener, <laughs> that sort of thing, the valve function diary, come on. Um, they, they found that uh, these, these drugs uh, dramatically and successfully inc- increase the likelihood of a good patient outcome. So good, all right? So they talk about how to administer the tools and the, and the clinical trials and the validation of the tools in OIC. And then they talk about the uh, population, because the population is important. Like I just said, you got to know the uh, comorbid diseases, what drugs they're on, and that sort of thing. They recommended the first line to get people moving, diet, uh, you know, some of the prophylactic stuff, and the usual things that, Time Immortal has always uh, wanted us to do, and it's sometimes hard to do in those with chronic pain, those with cancer, etc. Okay, so what are the drugs? Well, <clears throat> methyl naltrexone. Now, naltrexone is a drug that reverses opioids. Methyl naltrexone and naloxigol. Okay, and then there's also another one called Luba. Prostone. So that's uh, trade name Relistor, which used to be an injectable. People just didn't like doing that, but now they have a pill form. The second one is Movantic. That's the Super Bowl drug. And the third one is Amatiza. And it works a little bit differently. And I'm not going to go through the mechanism of exactly how they work. But think of the two first drugs, the Movantic Relistor as having that opioid reversal mechanism. And so if it goes to the right place, that being the mu receptor in the gut, and it reverses the effect of opioid there, the gut works better. These peripheral acting mu opioid receptor antagonists, PAMORA, P-A-M-O-R-A, are, are utilized to decrease the constipating effect of opioids. Well, wait a minute. So that's going to reverse my opioids so I can go into withdrawal or the opioid doesn't work. Well, at the recommended dosage, uh, the structure of the drug doesn't let it go into the blood-brain barrier uh, and traverse it. So it, it has a limited effect of interference from opi- uh, opioids. And that's interesting because that was the questions we were tackling yesterday. What about those in uh, treatment for opioid use disorders and they're getting uh, a buprenorphine product? Or those uh, in treatment for pain that are getting a buprenorphine product? Uh, or do you see uh, people going into withdrawal? Very, very rarely, I think. Uh, I've been using them, and I have not seen that happen. And so, anyway, be sure and bring a list of all the drugs that you're on because uh, they want, they're going to want to know uh, with the breakdown pathways of these drugs, the CYP384 uh, in the liver, uh, if you're taking uh, other drugs that you might not even think are a big deal, but St. John's wort, for example. Please don't take that drug. Um, erythromycin, uh, diltiazem, etc. And your doctor should know that. So bring all your drugs, and you should do pretty well with these drugs. 
All right, so I said Amatiz is a little different. What does it do? Okay, its, it's generic name is Luba Prostone. Okay. It works a little differently because it doesn't rely on the mu opioid receptor. It it increases the fluid in the bowels, and it also helps with some of the protecting mucosa layers in the intestinal lining, and so things move a little better. Okay, the the signals to uh, be aware of are increased cramping and um, nausea, vomiting with most drugs, and, and you can see um, a, a good response fairly quickly. And I will tell you, the injectable uh, Relistor, you better be by a bathroom. <laughs> and so uh, don't don't uh, plan on a two-hour car, uh, car drive um, when, you, when you inject that one. So uh, look for the type of patient to the providers or if you're the consumer. Are you wanting something gentle or are you wanting something that's going to really work? Fast and talk that over with your health care provider. The other thing is, if you have Crohn's disease or bowel disease, or if you've been prone to obstructions, or your doctor thinks, well, you may have an obstruction, do not obstruction, don't take these. Don't take these. So, this is the importance of a, a show like this. This is an informational show where you're going to take this stuff back to your health care provider and talk it over. Take some notes. Bring those notes with you. Um, and, you know, put the most important aspects of uh, your questioned visit first. Don't put the one you want to, uh, to know the most about at the bottom of the, the list because time time's tough and time's precious, and we want to give you every opportunity to hear a good answer. Okay. I think I've pretty much uh, about killed it on these two subjects. And uh, go to uh, uh, iTunes, leave us a review, please. Uh, it really helps us uh, get up there and get visible. And paininformation.com, if you have any questions. A lot of this stuff comes from the questions I get there. I'm making that page a little more visual, working on the webinars. But, uh, please be patient. Uh, uh, I'm going to uh, open it up to my peers for their input and uh, blogging, and that ought to be kind of fun. All of that's coming as uh, we get this uh, going. We're going to start uh, uh, producing uh, uh, different complex webinars, and it ought to be a good year for us. So it'll be fun, uh, and I look forward to seeing and hearing from you, and thanks for coming. <laughs>